we've been uh, studying First Peter for almost a year, and we are now up to chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I did get a uh, sweet text from a dear brother who noticed that uh, somebody had mentioned that verses 18 through 22 of First Peter chapter 3 were the hardest verses they believed in the Bible to interpret. So we might be in verses 8 through 12 for a long time. It's, uh, it's one section of thought here, verses uh, 8 through 12, by Peter, that's really connected to a main thought that he began back in chapter 2, verse 11. So please open your Bibles to Peter's first epistle. And let's read this passage together, you quietly, and I'll read this out loud. This is the voice of the Lord. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The voice of the Lord. Now you remember, as we're going through this, that Peter writes this to Christians to live for Christ in the face of ungodly pressure. He notes throughout this that there are various circles that we often have to apply this very thing to. These believers are scattered across Asia Minor and they're trying to faithfully follow Christ and Peter as a good shepherd does in caring for the sheep wants to encourage them wants to help them wants to give them words of Life that can really make them feel as though they can face each and every day. When we talk about the suffering here, we're talking about insults, we're talking about persecutions, we're talking about um, life being made difficult for them by the world around them. 
pressure from the unbelieving world around them. And so suffering in life is a sort of a sub-theme in this. You'll find that he just talks about suffering all over the place. Suffering as Christians. How a Christian can handle suffering. How he is supposed to handle suffering. You could call First Peter the theology of suffering. Peter, First Peter, and Job would be kind of complementary of one another. Chapter 2, verse 20, suffering for doing what is right, and you patiently endure it, and this finds favor with God. And so whatever circle of life you find yourself in, you have this challenge to endure suffering from unbelievers who just don't understand you. And that could be chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 in a marriage. Peter knows your temptation will be to feel like you're stuck. I've seen this. A dear friend of mine, pastor friend of mine, who was married to what he thought was a believing wife, only to come to find out months later she was faking it the whole way and the whole time and said the right things to be able to be married to him and everything went down south super quickly. What do you do? You feel stuck. Thought I married this type of person and now I've come to realize I've married this kind of person. And Peter says, hope is not gone for you. You can tend to feel a bit bit beat up in a situation like, like that. Peter says, you need to know how you live your life matters. Why? Well, for witness. For evangelism to be a testimony of grace to the lost and and the lost might even be right there in your own home. The lost might be in your workplace. The lost might be just in your community and where you go. In other words, how you endure suffering, even when that suffering comes from the community that you are around or the workplace that you're in or the marriage that you're in, how you endure suffering becomes a a testimony that Jesus is a life-transforming Savior. It's so important. You remember the theme for our new 
section is in verse 10, and it relates to what I just told you. Look at it there. The one who desires life to love and see good days. In other words, the one who wants the good life. The one who lives and loves the good days. Who wants to see good days in his life. I love that our Lord said this. Because sometimes it can almost seem like it is the unbelieving world that has the claim to the good life. But don't believe the commercials. Peter says here it is the Christian who has the claim to the good life. The real good life. Peter says to the wife married to the unbeliever, to the husband married to the unbeliever, I know that you are thinking, where have the good days gone? Am I stuck being a martyr? Can a person live good days in a situation like that? And Peter's answer is yes. There can be good days for you. It can be good days for any of us, for all of us as believers. In fact, actually, He wants us to live good days. He wants us to live the good life. Now, as we look at what Peter is telling us, is that life as a Christian is meant to be living and loving the good days. To have the good life. We're not talking about something that is just idealistic. We're not talking about something that's just hypothetical. We're talking about the reality. wants us to live the good life. Now, everyone, by the way, wants to live the good life. I mean, that's actually the goal of every unbeliever, right? I mean, who would want to uh, set their life up to live a not good life? Everyone wants the good life. I mean, and all sorts of explanations on what the good life is, you can hear from the unbeliever. Commercials tell you all sorts of things. Commercials will tell you and the, the world will tell you that the good life is various things like sex or alcohol or a new car. That's amazing, right? I mean, you see the commercials and you ever see that? It's, oh, this, this looks like an amazing commercial. I have no idea what it is I'm about to see. And you get to the very end and it's just, they're just trying to sell you a car. I mean, you think, are you kidding me? How come you didn't put the price tag on the deal? Because all of a sudden this commercial would have been terrible, Right? They don't want you to see that. The, you know, the, the good life for, to the world is a vacation in some exotic place. Oh, if I could only just get away, right? You know, the cruise that is over there. I get it. Those can be enjoyable. Playing sports and getting paid for it. Oh, that's the... The good life. Being a musician and getting an audience that will, you know, kind of you know, take what you're doing and you know, give you applause and maybe pay you for it. What The good life, right? People that can appreciate 
your art, people that can appreciate, you know, the things that you do, the expressions that you have as a person, the, the, for the uh, craft that you have, the things that you do or put together. Recreation, lots of money, the, the dream job, all sorts of ways the world describes how to get the good life and, and what it is. Well, believe it or not, almost 3,000 years ago, a man named Solomon was interested in that very thing too, the good life. He was the richest man alive. And he wanted to test himself. to give him some tests, his life some tests to find the good life. And I want to show you this is a really this is really amazing. I wish that uh, the world could just open, be open to reading Ecclesiastes one and two, and, and so that they could learn a little something. But let me show you what he did and, and how that ended up. So turn to Ecclesiastes. Uh, let's look at um, Ecclesiastes chapter one. We'll start there. Ecclesiastes is sort of in the middle of your Bible if you. Open to Psalms. Just uh, kind of go to the right for just a little while and you'll hit Ecclesiastes. All right. Now Solomon was David's son. He, he became king and God let him have unlimited riches. And he, and he did that because Solomon prayed for wisdom. Solomon didn't pray for riches. God said... Um, you know, you can pray for whatever you want. And this sort of maybe seemed like the uh, rub the genie bottle, I mean, for, you know, to somebody. And he said, I'd like to have wisdom. So you're talking about a man with both riches and wisdom. God gave him both wisdom and riches. This is the smartest guy alive, Okay. I want you to understand, we are about to look at the writing of the smartest guy who's ever lived. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel. Verse 13. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom all that has been done under heaven. I'm, I'm I'm going to do an experiment, Solomon says, and... Verse 14, I I see what others have done and it seems like vanity and striving after wind. So verse 16, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Listen, you put your education next to mine and it is, you know, scraps. It's junior level at best. Solomon says... I have gone places and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Well, he's not really shy about this, is he? You know, say, hey, I'm full of it, you know. And he means wisdom. I've got it all going on. I'm smart and rich. That's what basically what Solomon just said. I am smart and rich. 
So you, go, you get to chapter 2, verse 1, and he decides he's going to test himself about living the good life. So let's see these tests, and I'll just throw them out at you. We'll kind of hit these kind of a rapid fire. But test number one is the test of pleasure. What's the result? Futility. That's there in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. And it says, uh, he says, so enjoy yourself. And in the end, he found out that it was futility. And by the way, for the word futility just simply means emptiness. Nothing left. Nothing there. I like how one uh, pastor put it. Uh, It's like the steam on the cup of of, uh, coffee, right? It's trying to grab hold of fog and maybe put it in your pocket. You can't do it. There's nothing there. So that's the test number one. Test number two, notice it here in verse two. He tested laughter. He tested laughter. Now listen, we live in a day where humor is everything. Humor is everything. Oftentimes, he said, well, you know, uh, I went and I went to the, you know, see this guy preach and he was funny. And that's kind of a, to me, that's a, if that's the first thing you notice, oh boy. It's like, well, did he preach the word? Well, he was funny. All right, well, I, funny is not going to help me, like, have an awesome marriage. I've got to be honest. My wife is looking for anything but funny in marriage, right? I mean, it's like, I need you to, you know, funny is not going to clean a house or fix a, a sink or mow a lawn or anything like that, right? Today we're into finding ways to make you laugh. Find ways to keep you from thinking about how serious life is. Look at the result, verse 2. What does it accomplish, he says? It is madness, Solomon says. Test number 3, alcohol, verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. By the way, with all the money that he had... (laughs) This was no shortage of how much alcohol he could have or what kind of alcohol he could have. He said, well, maybe he just didn't have the best of, of you know, stuff. This other. Are you kidding me? He could have whatever he wanted. A fourth test. Let's call this one recreation. Look at verse 4. I enlarged my works, built houses for myself, planted vineyards, made gardens and parks, uh, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, ponds of water to irrigate a a forest of growing trees. Now to some of you, you're thinking, that sounds incredible. Let's go. Landscape, you know, trees, green, beauty. It's a landscaping guy. Maybe some of you have dreamed about what you would do if you had the money, what that landscaping would look like. I know, I've been there too. Solomon didn't lack, by the way, money in that department either. 
So whatever it is that he built, you got to think it must have been incredible. Fifth test that he had was wealth. Verse 7, Solomon says, I bought male and female slaves. And, uh, by that, you shouldn't be thinking, in t- you know, the way slavery, um, you know, what we know of slavery in the 15, 16, 1700s. The idea is to be able to have people that could just, you know, servants around the house. He possessed flocks, herds larger than all who were before him in Jerusalem, larger than any other king. That's what he means. Verse 8, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings. You remember the queen of Sheba? When she came and saw all his wealth, she said, "Uh, I've never seen anything like this. This is phenomenal. This is just a rich, rich, rich guy. The sixth test that... Solomon tested himself with verse 8. He says, I provided for myself male and female singers. And so we could say this is the test of music. Maybe music will bring me the good life. End of verse 8, seventh test, sex. He says, and the pleasures of men. And then to help you understand what he means by that, he says, many concubines. Say, what's a concubine? Well, let's just say they're prostitutes. And we know it says that he had many, almost a thousand. The eighth test, competition. Competition like sports. Look at verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all. That phrase, more than all, means I was competitive, competitively beyond people. Competitively beyond people. Some of you are kind of have that bone. There's some people that really have that bone stronger than others. In the, you know, you can tell. Because, you know, when you play uh, Settlers of Catan, it means a little more to them. You know what I mean? So you think, ooh, I think I'm, uh, I'm out here, you know. Competitive, more than, than, than all. and that, that it, I became a person who had to be the best at everything that I competed in. I had to win. And then in verses 9 and 10, my wisdom stood by me, all that my eyes desired. I did not refuse them. The ninth test then is education. Maybe that's the key to the good life, is to be educated and scholarly and to have knowledge and just to be able to know, know so much that you can just teach people things. So with all these tests, these nine tests, Solomon gives two conclusions to all this testing. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Didn't yield a certain kind of profit. What kind of profit? Life profit. 
He said, all of this stuff left me feeling like I'm actually living in the poorhouse. Where life profit where you can see and say, you know, maybe this is God's blessing. Sometimes I think we um, mistakenly think that God must be shining on me because look at all this stuff that I have or whatever. Don't ever forget Matthew 5. The Lord showers his blessing on the good and the evil. So the fact that you have stuff only tells us that you're either good or evil. Matthew 5. This is a fulfilled life, by the way. Chapter 2, verse 17. I mean, he's got everything. So what do you say? What's your conclusion to it all? So I hated life. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. And you can read the rest of Ecclesiastes and it is all Solomon saying, life lived this way is empty, it is futile, all go to the same place, all have the same fate as beasts. From pleasure, to comedy, to drinking, to materialism, to recreation, to music, to sex, to education. Didn't matter. Solomon couldn't call any of it the good life. You say, well, maybe he just wasn't advanced enough like us. I mean, well, he was the smartest man who ever lived and he had unlimited wealth and resources. Pretty sure none of us can say that. So what's the good life? How do you get it? That's what Peter's teaching us. Why? Because Christians who are suffering from living around unbelievers are tempted to think there is no good life. It's, you can tell because you hear it from them and they say, oh, can't wait to get to heaven. And when they, when, by the way, what they mean is, I can't wait to see Jesus. What they mean is, man, life stinks. I'd like to have this all done. That's not saying the same thing, right? Maybe God wants me to be resolved to live miserably. Have you ever had that thought? You say, oh, okay, I guess I'm one of those, right? That my sanctification you know, flows through that vein, you know. Peter says, no, that's not true. So if it isn't the things that Solomon pursued, what is the good life? Peter starts in verse 8. He says, to sum up, finally, let me bring this to a conclusion. Here's my conclusion. All circles of life that you find yourself in where there is trial and suffering and you want to win others to Christ, but you don't know how, here's how you live the good life to get the good days of chapter 310 so that those days can have the gospel impact that the Lord would have them have to save people. 
Here's how you do it. Point number one, the right approach. And we saw this last time. Verse 8, it starts with attitude. What, what is, what's the attitude or approach? Verse 8, five things. He says, be harmonious. That is, we talked about that, be like-minded. Get, do what you can to get on the same page with people. And, we, you know, we talked, we, remember last week we talked about not being a contrarian, right? And that's really what he's saying. He says, uh, secondly, sympathetic. Be like a passion. Be like passion. That is where you feel a sympathy, you feel for that other person. We shouldn't live our lives in a, some type of stoic, cold, distant way from you know, feeling what people feel. Thirdly, he said, have a brother love. Have a brother love. I tell you how important it is to come alongside people and just do what you can to connect with them. Be full of pity or mercy. Be kind-hearted. Feeling what others feel and be humble. Notice none of these have anything to do with possessing stuff. And that's why... The poorest of poor can have these things and you're left going, whoa, that person is as happy as a lark, right? I can't even believe it. They don't even have stuff, exactly. Very important lesson for me to learn. 30 years ago, took a trip, took some kids to do a short-term ministry down in Mexico and as I'm driving through there, and you see people living in cardboard boxes, and you think, oh, this is a different level of poverty that I'm used to seeing. And then you get down to the village where I went to, and I'm with the believers, and they have nothing, and it's just unbelievable how much joy that the believers had there. And I'm left thinking, okay, there is something wrong with me. There is something wrong with us, isn't there? Nothing to do with possessing stuff. Nothing to do with self-protection and self-promotion and self-fulfillment and self-pleasure. It's not what you get. It's the attitude and approach that you bring to life. See, that's, that's, that's the deal. All right. So that's all good. I mean, you have to have the right approach before you get started. But once you have the right approach, you have to actually do something. Say, so what, what should I do? Again, remember, he's talking about being in the context of people that are treating you unfairly. So, you need to do something. Well, the next point actually has more to do with what you shouldn't do, but it implies what you must do instead. So, point number two the right answer. You have to have the right answer. Not only do you have to have the right approach, but you have to have the right answer. What is the right answer in the context of being around people that treat you unfairly? 
it is this, forgiveness, not retaliation. Forgiveness, not retaliation. So I think that we are a people that are more prone to retaliation than forgiveness. I think that that's the nature that we have, that we've got to fight against. Now, I say the right answer. So answer to what? What are we answering? It is the right answer to the insults that you keep getting at work and in your marriage, the, the harshness that is directed toward you, toward you, all the unfair treatment. What's the answer to it all? Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. And say, you say, oh man, I used, I used to say that was my talent, is my insult, right? I thought I was good at that. Well, he says, no, don't be that way. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now we're going to break this one verse down for this morning in our message, okay? So we will not get to verses 10 through 12. Let's look at this. And it's because this is a huge point for us as believers, huge. And I told you it's because our natural reaction when people treat us unfairly is to retaliate. It's justice. It's to set the, you know, clear the air. It's to set the table right. It's to fight back. It's to protect our rights. And so the right answer to all of that abuse is no retaliation. That's Peter's message. Or as it says in your notes, forgiveness, not retaliation. Peter gives here in saying what he says, So let's look at this here. He gives a present participle that in this verse acts like a command. Always be this. Now what that tells me is I am always going to be challenged or tempted to not be this. Okay? Or maybe to say it a different way. I'm always going to be tempted or challenged to want to volley back the insult or the evil that has been done to me. And of course, as Christians, you do it with a smile because you don't want them to think that you're mean, right? You know, so, but he says, no, that can't be us. What's what's he saying? Stop returning evil for evil. If you're doing it, stop it. If you're tempted to do it, don't. If you're not doing it, never plan to do it. It's a principle then about revenge. Never take vengeance. Don't do it. And of course, the opposite of that is to be one who forgives or is willing to forgive in the moment. Now, I, I realize this is difficult. 
And it cuts right at the heart of, of us. One author once said, we are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. That's what Peter is saying. Augustine once said, if you are suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him, lest there be two bad men. I mean, that's our message here in 1 Peter 3, 9, or you could just sum it up like Spurgeon. Forgive and forget. When you bury a mad dog, don't leave his tail above the ground. That's Spurgeon. Peter says, not returning evil for evil. So we need to understand what this means. The word for evil is uh, kakos. It, uh, it means not just some bad thing that a person has done, but it actually means the badness itself. The badness itself. Inherent badness. A disposition of badness. Characterized by bad. When you are treated in an evil way by someone who is characterized by evil, don't return the badness. Don't return that disposition. Oh, I tell you, what a, what a temptation and a challenge. Right? I, you see it oftentimes with spouses. One spouse is maybe offended. And so they bring, you know, coldness into the, into the, you know, the climate becomes cold in the home. And then you have the other spouse responding to that with their own version of coldness. And, and then it just, nothing ever gets resolved at that point, at that level. Do not return, right? It's not volley time. Fine. If you're going to be that way, then I'm going to be that way, right? Don't return it. Peter knows, by the way, the Old Testament. We told you that that just really guides everything he's saying. Proverbs 17, 13. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Isn't that good? Just wait. Wait. We don't do wait real well. But he wants us. We must in this. Peter also will remember what his master Jesus said. Matthew 5, 38. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that's, I mean, that's the Jews lived off that. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You did this to me. I'm going to do that to you. Tell you what, recently when I heard about, saw the news, what what, uh, Hamas did towards the Jews, I, I I didn't need to think about that for more than about 15 seconds to know that I know what's coming next. It is ingrained in them to live eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You do this to me, we do that to you. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. 
But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Verse 42, give to him who asks you. Just give it. Just give it. He's talking about a Roman soldier who would come and say, hey you, give me that cloak. I'm using it for this purpose. You can't just take people's clothes. He said, just give it to them. Well, that's just not right. Just give it to them. Verse 43, you have heard that it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now what Jesus was basically saying is there is no room for revenge. No room for retaliation. I get it. I watch those same movies or read those same books where you got the one character and they've been, you know, all this injustice against them and they're going to turn around and, you know, take matters into their own hands. And, you know, so you're pulling for this guy and everything. And it's that whole revenge little deal there. But I tell you what, in real life, there's no room for retaliation. And then in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Listen, you're never more like the Father than when you're a forgiving person. Say, I want to be more like Jesus. Then start forgiving people. You want to be like Him? Forgive people all over the place. Just forgive them. Be ready. Be ready to forgive them. Listen, there's going to be... You will offend somebody without even realizing you're offending people, right? And they'll sometimes let you know. And sometimes not. I don't even know why they're... Why, why, why won't they talk to me? Well, maybe you offended them. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, what's that matter? Just... Be open to forgiving. When you patiently endure and refuse to retaliate. Same thing, by the way, in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 29. Very similar thing that he says in Matthew 5. But listen to this here. But Jesus gives a clue how to act like this in that passage. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you. He says, to you who hear. This is not a message for everybody. And the reason why is because some people don't hear. This is only for the people that fit to you who hear. What does that even mean? Who are the people that hear? The born again ones. The regenerate. Listen, no one can act like this in their own power. That's why he has to say, to you who hear, love your enemies. I already know, Jesus says, that you don't want to love your enemies. I know that. I already know that you're going to find some loophole that says, well, normally you love all people, but it's okay to hate these people. That's, that's normally how you work, but 
Listen, he says, to you who hear, to you who are believers, true believers, love your enemies. God saves a person. He gives them the ability to love enemies. To keep themselves back from retaliation. And then you go over to Paul in Romans 12 and it's the same thing. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Isn't it amazing that like this is just repeated. It's on, it's on loop, this message, all throughout the Bible. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Here's another, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Ooh. For all people. So you see the principle here. Don't retaliate with evil when a person does evil to you. And then Peter says that that has to do with words also. Insult for insult. Boy, I tell you what, we can use our words to push back. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm not. I just think, I think I got the point across with my little snarky thing that I just said there. Right? Those of you who are so clever and witty and biting. What Peter is saying is that a person like that isn't living the good life. You don't see good days being a person who retaliates. We're talking about a person who gives the right answer to whatever circle of life we are thrust in. And that answer is never retaliation. Now you examine the life of Jesus and the Gospels and, and they were they're constantly reviling him, right? Who does this guy think he is? And so forth. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them revile him. First Peter two twenty three Jesus never reviled back once, and that's what it should look like from us. Jesus always carried out Ephesians four fifteen, speaking the truth in love. Never anger, never force. Paul picked up on that and he just applied it to his own ministry. Listen to this, first Corinthians four, verses twelve and thirteen. We And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world. And you know what Paul is saying, meaning by that? And that's okay. It's okay. We have become the scum of the world. Okay. The good life is turning someone's slander of you into an opportunity to bless them. Man, that would be radical. Not sure I can really do that. 
You can if you know the Lord. You can. In fact, um, living this way should impact who you are having fellowship with. Be careful. I would say, be careful that if you're around a reviler type person, I would encourage you to separate. Because pretty soon it will influence you in the wrong direction. You say, man, how can you say that? 1 Corinthians 5.11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Notice the reviler is in the same list as the drunk guy in the immoral guy. It is that bad. Don't be the reviler. Same thing in First Corinthians six ten. Now let's get a let's see if we can uh, bring this down even more. So, what is retaliation? What are we talking about here? Retaliation is wanting to take matters into your own hands after being treated unfairly or after being insulted. It's the sons of Jacob. Remember that in Genesis 34? And they felt so righteous in doing this. Their daughter, or excuse me, their sister, uh, Dinah, was raped. And the guy that raped her wanted to marry her. And they said, okay, passive aggressive. Okay, uh, we have a tradition where you just get circumcised and... uh, you do that, and we'll be all right. You'll become one of us. And, of course, when they got circumcised in their weakness, the brothers slaughtered the whole town of Shechem, the males in that whole town. It's retaliation. It's Absalom taking vengeance against Amnon for violating his sister. We think, I mean... We think that they're in the right because the wrong was so bad that the right kind of equalizes it all. But instead of being like those guys, we're to be like Joseph. Remember Joseph, he was thrown into a pit by his brothers, left for dead. And later on, when the brothers came to him in Egypt, Joseph said, the brothers, remember the brothers were, were so afraid. Whoa, what is he going to do? Why? Why are you thinking that way? Because isn't retaliation the just kind of how people live? And Joseph said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for what? Good. So why do we retaliate? Several reasons why we're prone to it. I think one of the biggest ones is for self-protection. We just, you know, we want to protect ourselves from being in some bad place. I think we retaliate to put justice into our own hands. 
we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna right the wrong. Some people retaliate to be ahead of the competition. Some people retaliate wanting others to feel your pain. Right? Some people retaliate because they want to balance things out an eye for an eye. So you want to even the score. Some people retaliate just out of pure hatred. Listen, Titus 3, the Lord saved us to take the hatred away. And that shows up the most clearly when we don't retaliate. And so what do we do instead? Verse 9, Peter says, but giving a blessing instead. Now what does that mean? The main thing that that means is it's the opposite of retaliation. What is the opposite of retaliation? Forgiveness. Here's how you practically answer the world's abuse. You give them a blessing. Now, we talk that way a lot, don't we? And I suppose maybe some of you see this and just kind of, maybe you're thinking, Maybe you're thinking, I don't even know what it means to give another person a blessing other than after they sneeze or something, you know. Um, What does that even mean? Give them a blessing, you know. Or we think of the formal way where you put your hand on their head and say, all right, I'm just going to give you a blessing. Here, say, pray for you, boom, you're blessed, right? We sort of think that way, but that's not really what this means. Let me give you a few ways to look at this. To bless another person, and by the way, the, all of these ways just come from what, what the Bible actually has already said. We've already shown you some of these passage, passages. But to bless another person is, first of all, to love that person unconditionally, right? It is to love that person unconditionally. And that's the point of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. That's the point of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Here's a guy the Jews believed you were supposed to hate, and Jesus made that guy the hero of the story. And it's where you love unconditionally. The other person didn't earn your love. They don't deserve your love but you gave it away anyway. Second way that you bless a person, and you can find this in Matthew 5 and Luke 6, and in many of the places in the Scripture that talk about not being vengeful, you pray for him, right? Isn't that what it said in Matthew 5? I think it's verse 44, Matthew 5, 44. You pray for him. And you say, what do you pray about? Remember, we learned... In verse 7, so that your prayers may not be hindered, and you put it in the context, he's praying for their salvation. That husband is praying for the salvation of his unbelieving wife. And so, you, how about you, you, you pity the person, and by pitying that person, man, that person can't see, and they act like they act like because they need Christ about that and so you look past his or her sin and you look to their great need salvation from sin salvation in Christ to have new life third way you bless a person is by gratitude sometimes that's what the word actually means to give thanks and in fact in that 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15 passage that I showed you just two verses later 
it says in everything give thanks. It's kind of hard, by the way, to want to retaliate against a person whom you are thankful for. And I think that's how Joseph got to where he got to when he saw his brothers. He's just so thankful for them. Here's another way to bless a person. How about speaking well of them to others? Speak well of them to others. Ooh. Make sure that others know the good attributes, whatever they are, even if you can only find one, right? Just focus on that one, I guess. This has to do with um, how you talk about them when they're not around. How you represent that person when they're not around. This is returning good. This is, as one person put it, returning praise for pain. And then a fifth way to bless a person is to desire their well-being and to even seek their well-being. That's Luke 6. Seek their well-being. Seek it. And the, now there's a word that describes everything we just went through, and it is the word forgiveness. Be willing to forgive them, and then actually forgive them. Here's a, here's a person wanting to harm you, and you just act in an unselfish way, and there's grace, and there's mercy, and there's love and forgiveness. I was reminded of the story that we have because Elizabeth Elliot and the Nick Saint family have. They responded to what happened to their loved ones. Jim Elliot, as maybe you are many of you are aware, as a missionary. Aachen tribe, tribal uh, people. And he went there, this group, to preach the gospel. And they they had done their research. They knew what they were ahead of. They knew that this group of people were cannibals. And they get there, and on the beach, they were speared to death. the response of Elizabeth Elliot was to begin to pray for these people and more than that, to actually go back and bring the gospel. And the very man that killed her husband became a Christian. And the son can call that man grandfather, brother. How? Because of this. Love for Christ that spilled over into love for lost souls. They understand the only reason why they killed them was because they were lost and needed the gospel. You say it's so hard to be like that. I mean, to answer life's Harshest moments like that, it's hard. It is. 
And that's why 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25, you have to keep that reminder of what Jesus was like. You've never had it harder than Jesus. You say, but he was sinless. True. But he has poured the Spirit into your heart and the love of God shed abroad in your heart to be able to live this way, to be like Christ. Peter says, but there's a massive motivation for why we would answer their insults in evil this way. Look at it in verse 9, 1 Peter 3, 9. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. What does Peter mean by that? The word called means effectual calling, always, or election. God chose you for the foundation of the world for this very purpose. For what purpose? That you would go through the path of suffering on the way to inheriting a blessing. What's the blessing? Our salvation. All that is in our salvation. The enjoyment of it. The riches of it. The Ephesians 1, 3, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 statement of it. And the point is, with all that blessing that we have from God, all that we have in Christ, why can't we forgive people? Ephesians 4.32, He's forgiven us so much. So therefore, forgive others. The greatest part of our blessing, we get grace and constant forgiveness from God through Christ. Our calling is to be these dispensers of forgiveness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath this flood, lose all their filthy stain. With all of that, why wouldn't you forgive others? Why would we retaliate when we are offended? Let me close here by having us finish in Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18. And um, let me just give you the picture of what this looks like. Verse 15, a brother sins and you go to him in private and you show him his sin. You, com- you, you confront it out of love. And there's this process here. You know, if he listens, you want your brother. If he doesn't, then you keep confronting him until he repents by bringing more and more believers uh, to him until you bring it to the whole church. Not because you want to air out that person's dirty laundry, but because you want to win him over to obedience to Christ. Now I tell you, we commit ourselves as a church to this process and we will really be risking it. Risking what? Relationships. What if I offend that person? Can you take that risk out of love? He says, is that what the disciples were thinking? I, absolutely. Look at, look at Peter, uh, verse 21. Then Peter came. So this is on the tail of everything that Jesus just said about confronting sin. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Is that good? 
Now, does forgiveness have a limit? I mean, where did Peter come up, by the way, with that number seven? Well, the Jews had this uh, teaching that radical forgiveness was forgiving somebody three times. And on the fourth one, you let them have it, okay? Say, hey, listen, I've got three strikes and you're out, right? I mean, I've given you three, and you haven't done the deal. You've, you've kind of, you keep blowing it, so you know what? No, I don't forgive you. I don't forgive you. That's where the Jew was. And Peter doubled that up and added one, right? So he felt pretty good, you know? Hey, how about seven times? Maybe he's thinking it is hard. I bet the Lord's going to be impressed with that one. I feel like I'm a pretty forgiving person by saying this. Jesus says, uh, well, verse 22, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, by the way, Jesus wasn't doing math here. This is not a math deal. He was saying, you need to be ready to forgive always and for everything. There's no limit, Peter. There's no line. And then Jesus gave Peter and the disciples a parable. Take a look at it. You got a king wishing to settle accounts with his slaves. One slave owed 10,000 talents. Now, by the way, a talent was the equivalent of 15 years' wages. And he owed 10,000 of those. He's never going to pay that back. This is a lot of money he owed. And it was, you know, he was telling him this to to make the point. The slave says, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's pretty helpful for what forgiveness means. What does it mean to forgive? It's to release the person from anything that might stand in the way, right? Just release them. Release them. Cut the strings. Then you have the forgiven slave, and he went out and he found a fellow slave that owed him 100 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. Quite significantly lower than what he was forgiven. And he seized that slave and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. And Jesus called that guy a wicked slave. The Lord told told the slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? Where's the mercy? And he says that that man was sent to the torturer. What does that mean? Is he talking about hell? Yeah. Yeah. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. In other words, he was establishing the principle that a regenerate person, a Christian, is one who forgives. is the point. We are marked by that quality. We are the forgiving people. Christians are the people of forgiveness. Been forgiven and then flowing forgiveness to others. We are a constant fountain of forgiveness. That's how 
He handled the relation. In your heart that is struggling, that, that, that wants to bring out retaliation. The vengeance that rises up. We are marked as the forgiving people. How can we grow in facing trials this way, in facing difficult people? First, stop, right? He says, not returning. That's just stop. Treat it as a sin, confess it as a sin. Secondly, give. So first, confess. Secondly, give. Give what? Forgiveness. Give the blessing. Give the forgiveness. Thirdly, remember your purpose. Remember what your purpose is. Your purpose is to be this fountain of forgiveness to others. What about you? That comes, by the way, the blessing that comes when we forgive. Are you ready to have that kind of ministry to give people that blessing? That's what the Lord wants. And uh, it's based on something that we're going to find out about next week. And it is really based on having the right authority. And we're going to talk about that next week. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and um, giving us guidance on how to be these kind of people that have the right response, Lord, the right answer to all the unfair treatment that happens around us and maybe to us. Help us, Lord, for the sake of our marriages, for the sake of our jobs, for the sake of being those type of people in the community. Help us, Lord, to respond to life this way, to answer life's most difficult things this way. And uh, may this church, Grace Bible Church, be marked by that kind of activity, I pray, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.